A motley group of mean men approached a house in a Philadelphia suburb, armed with pickaxes and sledgehammers, perhaps a dozen or more. Let's just say they were not there to thank a signer of the Declaration of Independence for his service and sacrifice. They were sent by people who one of the signers, Robert Morris, owed a great sum of money. At this point, no one thought that they were getting anything back given the number of creditors and lawsuits. This group was set on getting what they could, not through the legal system. He must have gold, silver, riches hidden away, or we'll take it out in his person. A pickaxe is not exactly the tool of conciliation. Fortunately for Morris, signer from Pennsylvania, he had some house guests, and among the possessions he still owned, as he took refuge from the city where most of his creditors lived, were several small arms. Out the window and doors of his second home, called the Hills, hands appeared with small arms ready to fire. This was a tense moment. I'm sure both sides considered where this was going. Fortunately, after a few moments, the pickaxe gang decided that while they might get their man, they would also earn a few musket balls in the taking and lose some of their number if they charged. It was fortunate, Morris would later write, we would not have been able to hold off all of them. Things didn't always work out well for the signers of the Declaration. It was a magic document in many ways, but it obviously had no magic power in the real world. And those who signed it didn't get any immunity from prosecution or bankruptcy or from condemnation. And certainly, this applies to Morris. But it was not all bad his entire life. Thus, let's switch to a more glorious moment for him. It must have been a perplexing sight in Canton Harbor, now known as Guangdong and in southeastern China, in 1784, used to the vessels of Portugal, of Britain, of France, even Sweden and Denmark. Now, for the first time, a ship with a new flag, one with red bars, some white stars on a blue background, appeared, whose citizens spoke the same as the British citizens, but wished to meet and set up trade on their own terms as a new nation no longer part of the British crown. The Empress of China, a former privateer, sailed into the Canton Harbor to do business with the Kehang, the collection of merchants specifically allowed to trade with foreigners. It was, three years after victory at Yorktown, a signal that the new nation was alive and ready to do business with the world, all of the world, even this faraway place. Morris was among the owners of that ship. He was a rich man, richer than most of the signers, and obviously richer than the average American on the continent. He fought an invisible American revolution that most of history misses, one of rates of interest and notes of credit, of prodding domestic wealth and engaging in international finance. He helped to finance the Continental Army's greatest victories. At Trenton and Yorktown, he wrote the checks but he never stopped his private merchant practice at the same time he took on public service jobs and commingled business transactions in a way that we wouldn't accept today and something he would be criticized by Thomas Paine and members of Congress for. He went broke pursuing wild gambles and an act of vanity. Yet without him, who knows what might have come of an unsupplied army with no money. Charles Thompson, the Secretary of the Continental Congress, whose name we know also appears on the document with the signer, said that the army was at the point of disbanding for want, not of pay, 
but of provisions, and enemies were looming themselves with the hopes of our speedy ruin. By his personal credit and wise measure, he retrieved and established credit, fed and kept the army together. So said Thompson about Robert Morris. Thus, Robert Morris is a perplexing founder to modern ears, and a perfect one to discuss in terms of the whole role of riches in the Declaration of Independence and wealthy signers. Were all the signers just simply a bunch of rich men? Were they simply in it for the money? Indeed, Morris was one of the richest men in Philadelphia at a time when that was America's largest city. Yet, he was not always that way. He did not come from a landed aristocracy. He was born in Liverpool, England, 1734, making him 42 at the time of the signing. His father was separated from his mother, a tobacco trader in Maryland, and so, when Robert was 10, this tobacco trader father sent for him. Yet soon after, his father died in a water accident, and Robert Morris went to Philadelphia for an internship, and he got some work at the wharf, and then was hired by a prominent shipping and finance company in Philadelphia owned by Josiah Willing. When Willing died, his son Thomas took over. 1754, and elevated Robert Morris to the position of partner in the company. Renamed the enterprise, Willing, Morris, and Company. He must have been a good employee. This firm went on to become one of the colony's wealthiest. With nine ships and its own wharf, this made Morris an influential citizen of Philadelphia, America's largest city in that day, one consulted with on the great matter of independence and eventually the need of supplying an army and a new nation. They went right to Morris. He was a mastery, John Adams said. He rose from nothing but a naked boy by his industry, ingenuity, and fidelity. Yet he was not a patriot firebrand. No Patrick Henry-type speeches would come from his tongue. He was not even as much for independence as the more moderate John Adams, unlike so many of the other signers. Robert Morris did not rush to the protest over the Stamp Act of 1765, and indeed, though he is one of the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, at the time of the debate in July 1776, he would not cast his vote for it. He, as Benjamin Rush said, was opposed to the time and not the act of independence. And so, Morris decided not to show up on the day of the vote, and by his absence, allowing the Pennsylvania delegates to vote for independence. He was involved, though Robert Morris was a member of the Secret Committee of Correspondence as early as November of 1775 involved in Patriot activities. This committee was created to procure, pay for, and distribute arms, powder, and cannons, clothing, all kinds of war needs for the initial resistance before there was even an official independence movement. Much of this was done by contracting with commission agents, whom Morris knew from his work. He also became chairman of the Secret Committee of Trade in 1776, determining how the new nation would trade with others. The position on these two committees made Robert Morris the manager of all foreign procurement for the new United Colonies. Morris earned commissions on this, and he used the credit of the United States in Congress assembled as his own credit. Much of the committee's business was conducted simply by the firm of Willing and Morris. When we bought clothing for the troops, when we bought gunpowder, we bought musket balls. It was Willing and Morris buying it under its own name. Only the bookkeeping entries separated the company's affairs from the United States affairs, something that would be intolerable now by any accounting standard. From 1775 to 1777, nearly what would be today hundreds of thousands in contract went. Willing and Morris, and others 
to other partnerships that Morris was involved in. One of the benefits that Morris enjoyed was his ability to use the government's money to finance his own private operations. If he engaged in a venture that was successful, in some cases he would pull out the United States money and put his own in. But he got to use the United States money as the venture capital. During Washington's Yorktown campaign, Morris continued with the process he had already set in motion, and he went one better. He obtained a big loan from France. With these funds and a portion of his own money, Morris organized the country's first government-incorporated bank, the Bank of North America. Foreign governments to do business with the new Continental Congress when they knew that behind this bank was a world-renowned merchant name, that of Robert Morris and other wealthy people that he would get to join the bank. Morris was somewhat reluctant about his role in public service. Ambition had no share in bringing me forward into the public life, nor has it any charms to keep me here. The time I have spent has been the severest tax on my life, and I really think those who have had so much should be relieved and let some fresh hands take the helm. It's an interesting perspective, and you see how early Americans viewed public service. In some cases, they didn't like it. This was a, this was a common sentiment among the very rich. They wanted to get involved in public service, but it was taking them from their jobs, which were requiring uh, their work for income. Morris would be most involved from 1781 to 1784 as the new nations formed under the Articles of Confederation. But there's no president. There's a weak Congress. So Congress gave Morris something akin to executive power in order to decipher the perilous state of the young nation's finances. He slashed expenses and used many of his own dollars to purchase supplies for the army and navy of the new nation. He also ran the risk of ruining his own personal credit, borrowed from friends, and wrote notes, not under the United States in some cases, but under Robert Norris. He was the new nation's superintendent of finance. But in 1784, he starts talking to friends that he's in need of cash at times. His name carries such weight, though. It's not initially seen as a problem. In fact, what are called Morris notes circulating all over the early nation. The Virginia legislature accepts the notes as payment for taxes. He was getting into speculation in two areas. Western land, and this is the, the area of Indiana, the area of the Ohio Valley. He's buying millions of acres of this land that he's never seen. And he's buying lots in the new capital in Washington, D.C., which was paid for and planned out largely by speculative stocks. Throughout everything that Robert Morris did, there was one central tenet, the desire to be seen not as a rich merchant, but as a gentleman. Public service, of course, was important for keeping up that image, not just for Morris, but for all the wealthy in America. Yet despite his wealth on paper, he was never able to acquire much land in the populated part of the country. You know, I'm not talking about his speculative western lands that he would never visit. But he's not the largest landholder in Philadelphia by any means. There are always people in town who could equal his ostentatiousness. People he needed in order to make deals and keep his bank going. In 1794, he sought to answer these rivals by constructing what would become the largest mansion in Pennsylvania's largest city. In 1794 construction began on a new mansion on Chestnut Street in Philadelphia. The designer was Major Pierre-Charles Lafont, the designer of Washington, D.C., who had just been fired from that project. 
Here's some bad developments would occur, mostly caused by Robert Morris simply writing too many notes. Just like a run on one of today's bank, there was a run on this individual, Robert Morris. And if a few creditors came to collect, he could pay. But as many did, he found that there were too many notes out there for him to supply his creditors with cash. Well, you've got a problem in the time of the early founding of the nation. You're living in Philadelphia. It's a fairly small city, and you've got all your creditors there. So he moved to the hills, his country estate at the edge of Philadelphia, the view of the Schuylkill River. He purchased that in 1770. And he hoped that just enough of the speculative land deals would work out in order for his grand marble and brick house that Defont was designing to work. The sheriff made several visits to his house, always polite. This was a large figure in American society. This was a friend of former President Washington. But in the winter of 1798, the sheriff had to arrest him. He did not contest it. He was taken to debtor's prison on Walnut Street and lived within its walls for a few years. His summer house was destroyed by fire. The mansion on Chestnut Street was never built. It could not be finished, it could not be sold unfinished, and eventually the building was raised. In prison, Robert Morris had a simple life. He tended to a garden there. He would be occasionally visited by people, including George Washington, others of high standing. He was eventually released after the Congress passed new bankruptcy relief laws. Now, these laws required that your creditors agree that you'd be released from prison. Some of these creditors did, took a while to agree to that, but eventually Morris was released, and he lived for a few more years, died in 1806. Robert Morris is a perplexing figure, indispensable to the founding of the country, the signing of the Declaration of Independence, of allowing the nation to seriously compete, but yet he's perplexing. Some historians have condemned him, for it was clear he made money off his role in the Revolution, though to really go and sort everything out, would rely on bookkeeping that only he has. At the same time, his service was invaluable, and it's hard to imagine an enterprise like a new United States of America operating without someone like a Morris involved somewhere, a guy of high standing who was the money. Morris engaged in business on one occasion with another signer of the Declaration, a signer who had previously been known for stopping a rebellion and would reluctantly come around to supporting one. In this case, it was a business deal on a privateer ship, and it didn't go well. When the ship attacked a Portuguese vessel, both Robert Morris and his partner, Carter Braxton, another signer of the Declaration of Independence of Virginia, were roundly criticized, censured by Congress. Portugal was neutral in the revolution. Unlike Spain and France, they were not rabid against Britain. Its prime minister expressed a support for various reconciliation efforts before the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Lawsuits resulted from the event, and both Morris and Carter Braxton would pay. Well, Carter Braxton had the ability to do so. His name represents the Virginia common tactic among the aristocracy of retaining family names through a mixture of first and last name. His name reflects Robert King Carter, one of the richest men in the colony of Virginia in 1700s, his grandfather, and George Braxton, his father, who was a wealthy planter. It's probably true that about 40 important families, including Lees, Randolphs, Carters, Nelsons, we're running Virginia. 
Braxton, 40 years at signing, was no average brewer like Adams, no client-to-client lawyer and wordsmith on the side like Jefferson, no self-taught bootstrapper like John Penn. He came with a William and Mary education, and he came with 300,000 acres of Virginia land and 1,000 slaves. Thus, you could not call Carter Braxton a radical at all. He was strong in American rights, and he did end up as a signer, but he was not a rebel. Is one of the wealthiest landowners and slaveholders in the Old Dominion of Virginia. Carter Braxton was active, like many wealthy Virginians, in the Virginia House of Burgesses. And he was a moderate politician during the Revolution. He did support the right of Virginia exclusively to tax its inhabitants, and he did back Patrick Henry's motions against the Stamp Act, and eventually joined along with the Patriot Movement after Governor Lord Dunmar closed the House of Burgesses. But the first role of this soon-to-be rebel was actually in stopping a revolution. In May 1775, Carter was confronted by Patrick Henry and a group of militiamen. They were adamant about the fact that a supply of Virginia's gunpowder had been seized by the royal governor, Lord Dunmore. From the Militia's Magazine by men under the cover of night so that the militia would not have access to any gunpowder. Well, at the very least, they must be reimbursed. They reimbursed. They must demand this from the royal governor, or we will have war. This is not 1776. This is May 1775. The Virginia colony, perhaps, was not ready for a war with England, which might have started if they attacked a royal governor. Braxton got involved, and he saw to it that the powder was paid for by his father-in-law, who was owed money by the royal government and could simply pay for it out of his royal accounts. This little accounting move helped ward off a brutal conflict, which would have been too early. Indeed, Carter Braxton was hesitant and didn't see immediately, even as late as April of 1776, that the colonies should go independent. He wrote to his uncle, A Grand Continental League must be formed, and a superintending power also. When these necessary steps are taken, and I see a coalition form sufficient to withstand the power of Britain or any other, then I am for an independent state and all its consequences, as I think then they will produce happiness. During the spring of 1776, Braxton authored a pamphlet entitled An Address to the Convention of the Colony, an Ancient Dominion of Virginia. The reason for this pamphlet was to rebut the ideas penned by John Adams in his Thoughts on Government which was released the same year, and advocated a stronger democracy with a role for everyone. It was clear at this point that independence was coming. He realized it now, but what type of a new government would exist? Well, it would be a democracy, but Braxton hoped it would be a light one. And here, in his Address to the Convention and Colony, we see the sentiments of one of the most conservative of the signers. Starts out pretty declaration-like. When despotism has displayed her banners, and with unremitting order and fury scattered her engines of oppression through this wide-extended continent, there was virtuous opposition of the people to its progress. Okay, sounds like he's saluting the rebels. But then quoting Montesquieu, always a safe bet in America at that time, though the French Enlightenment thinker passed away in 1755, everybody followed his every word that he had written. One political scientist uh, recently has found that Montesquieu was the most frequently quoted authority on government and politics in colonial pre-revolutionary British America, cited more than any source except for the Bible. So he quotes him thusly, there is one nation in the world 
that has for the direct end of its constitution political liberty, and that is England. So in this document, Braxton, he's now celebrating England. What kind of rebel is he? These laws have also been those of Virginia. It would be perverting all order to oblige us by a novel government to give up our laws, our customs, and our manners. Should we question Carter Braxton's commitment to the patriot cause here? Well, no, he is for home rule. But what kind of rule does he want? It seems like he's saying we should just create another England. The systems recommended to the colonies seem to accord with the temper of the times and are fraught with all the tumult and riot incident to simple democracy. Best of these systems exist only in theory and were never confirmed by the experience, even of those who recommend them. Braxton pointed out that one republic after another in history had come to an unhappy ending. The Netherlands, he claimed, became as unhappy and despotic as the one of which we complain. And Venice, he said, is now governed by one of the worst of despotisms. Now, just strictly speaking of 1776, he's not far off. At the time of the Declaration of Independence, no one had really done a good job with republics yet. And he further says, I flatter myself, therefore, that you will not quit a substance actually enjoyed for a shadow or a phantom. That's how he viewed democracy. And here we get to Carter Braxton's alternate interpretation of what that phantom is, of how American history should not go, except his phantom is kind of like the government we have today. Yet things in many states went Braxton's way for many years, with elites being elected, with its landed property voting rights, women with no suffrage, and men, of course, in slavery. So everything was not so democratic. Public virtue means a disinterested attachment to the public good, exclusive and independent of all private and selfish interest. It's never characterized the mass of people in any state. And this is said to be the principle of democratical governments. A man, therefore, to qualify himself for a member of such a community, must divest himself of all interested motives and engage in no pursuits which do not ultimate redound to the benefit of society. He must not through ambition desire to be great, because it would destroy that equality on which security of the government depends. Nor ought he be rich, lest he be tempted to indulge himself in those luxuries which, although lawful, are not expedient, and might occasion envy and emulation. Schemes like these may be practical in countries so sterile by nature as to afford a scanty supply of the necessities and none of the conveniences of life, but they can never be met with a favorable reception from people who inhabit a country to which providence has been more bountiful. It's a defense of the rich. It's a defense of property. It's in his argument, Braxton's argument, that we see all the arguments that would come in political history and still exist today. Do we tax the rich? Do we limit earnings? Do we have a minimum wage? Do we set a tax on luxury buys? Do we limit what luxuries one can buy? Not everything in our democracy is, well, democracy. The majority doesn't have the right to force you to do everything. Evidence the Senate, a body that is constructed with two votes for each state. Yet states are not an equal side. Evidence the Electoral College, which, though influenced mostly by the popular vote, has at least three times picked a president the popular vote did not. It's not complete democracy. And people like Carter Braxton had an influence in that. He's not the only one. His words are important, I think, because it's important to know that the American Revolution was not just a group of mechanics firing musket balls at redcoats and dethroning a statue of a king with crowds of people. Republican virtues also played a role. His words, you see the beginnings of debates we have over politics. Votes or virtue? Government by honor or government by polls? Who wins? Despite his feelings about democracy, Carter Braxton did much to contribute to the war. When you own 300,000 acres, and there are forces that are coming that may create a war situation in your state, 
you are certain to be affected. Shouldn't your conservative notion be to protect that land, especially because the chances that the war would be brought to you and your land is pretty good? Shouldn't you protect your business interests? Don't you want commerce to continue, i.e. no war? You would think so, but these considerations are not reflected in Braxton's actions. So while a conservative, he remains a patriot. In the Stamp Act protest, he did agree to non-importation, though it would clearly hurt his business. Despite opposing independence in the debate stage, he did sign the document, thus pledging his riches, his honor, committing himself to possible punishment. He put his money where his mouth is, to coin the phrase of today. He did something else. He created a privateer fleet to attack British shipping. Now, this was part of war in these days. Now, it was a private ship, and he certainly was going to take anything stolen from those British ships, but it was part of war. A lot of the naval war was going to be financed by private uh, citizens. Didn't always work out so well. He was censured in 1780 for the role in the Phoenix attacking that Portuguese vessel. To add insult to injury, a separate disaster occurred in 1779 in which Braxton lost a tobacco ship to the British worth 40,000 pounds. Now, he still owned all that land from his family and a nice house in the country, but he mortgaged his estate and then it was raised by the British. Still owned all that land in his family, but the debts on it became too much. He became landrish, cash poor and ended up moving to a small row house in Richmond. Once a rich man, a conservative opposing democratic government, after the revolution, he became a worker for the new state government, working for Governor Patrick Henry, dependent on his small salary in order to live. It was a sad ending, but it was not as some accounts have. He wasn't penniless or destitute, he was just cash poor, and not the only one in Virginia in this situation, with land that no one could buy to the extent to pay for all the liens placed on it. He lived in a manner that might have been embarrassing for such a gentleman, the Carter and Braxton family, but he was comfortable and not in prison as Morris was. Not all of these richer founders ended in disgrace. Major battles, no troops of redcoats with torches, no marauding Hessians came to the residence of William Parker during the war. Was he lucky? Perhaps, because the war was not taken to the state of Maryland in a serious manner. Two Maryland signers that we'll talk about here, of note, held on to their property unharmed and their fortunes kept, and they would go on to be the richer men in the new nation. William Paca, born October 1740, second son of John Paca, gentleman of a large estate, who resided in the county of Hartford in the state of Maryland. Now, although he was wealthy in land, he did not necessarily come from money, or at least the money wasn't in the family for that many generations. It's kind of an interesting and American story. Robert Paca, great-grandfather, came to the country in the 1660s as an indentured servant. When the man that he was a servant for died, he ended up marrying his widow and thus inherited quite a big fortune. So the Pacas had uh, considerable assets. Though wealthy, Paca was a fighter for the people. Maryland was a proprietary or corporate government. It wasn't a direct royal government. It was a proprietary one. There was a lot of tension with the people that lived there. The government consisted of three branches. House of Burgesses, just like Virginia had. The members of those are elected by the people. Second branch is called the Upper House, like a Senate. The members of which are elected and removed at the pleasure of the proprietor. And then the governor was himself a third branch that really had all the power. He could veto anything and 
essentially say that an act of assembly was not valid. 1768, Paco won a seat in the lower house, and he soon aligned himself with another signer, his good friend Samuel Chase, and other Whigs in protesting the powers of this proprietary governor. In the early 1770s, Paca joined other Maryland patriots in urging the governmental regulation of fees paid to civil officers. You know, salaries were large. And imposing a poll tax that was put on citizens in order to pay the salaries of Anglican clergy, representing the established church. Not everyone in Maryland wanted that, especially because Maryland was formed originally as a Catholic colony. He defended a man who refused to pay the poll tax successfully. In June 1774, with the loyalties of the state militia highly suspect, the anti-British faction in the legislature headed by Paca and Chase went toe-to-toe with the proprietary governor. The Patriot secessionists formed their own provisional convention that assumed control of the Maryland state government. They took over from the proprietor. And at this convention, Paca, Chase, Johnson, and another signer we'll talk about in a bit, Charles Carroll of Carrollton, all received their first appointments to the First Continental Congress. Now, this provisional convention, which was running Maryland uh, during the Revolutionary War, was still a bit conservative, and it had adopted a conservative constitution. But among its features, it established toleration for all Christians. Catholics were once allowed again to practice in the colony. I think it's important because now you've got a new state government in Maryland. They've reinstituted the Toleration Act, in a sense, that that was repealed there. You have religious freedom in Maryland. Well, once you had that, it divined that the new nation that was to be created would have to be tolerant in terms of religion, because at least one of its parts was, and if it was going to swallow that part, why, it was going to have to adopt that policy. So with Maryland and Rhode Island, those are two states where... And, of course, the dissenters in many of the other states. All of these things went a long way towards religious freedom in our country. Now, unlike other signers we talked about earlier, Mr. Paco was not a reluctant signer. He was an open advocate for Declaration of Independence, as were several of his colleagues. Maryland was not at all prepared for a measure like that. So the convention sent him instructions when he went to Philadelphia. You know, don't vote for independence yet until you check with us. So during the... Deliberations, Paca, Chase, Carroll worked tirelessly to build alliances and gain the support needed within Maryland so that they could go do their jobs in Philadelphia. And eventually the convention was swayed. Maryland voted to cast its lock of independence. Never a doubt in Paca's mind. As a member of the Maryland Council of Safety, Paca spent large amounts of his personal fortune outfitting Maryland troops and procuring needed goods. After the war, he retired to private life. Uh, he did become governor of Maryland for a time. He, su- he supported the Constitution in the ratification convention in Maryland, but he did make 28 amendment suggestions, some of which ended up in the Bill of Rights. Washington made him a judge for the District Court of the United States for Maryland, 1789, and he held the office for 10 years when he died at age 60. One additional note. A question that remained is if William Paca is of Italian-American ancestry. And I did look at this a bit, and the best answer seems to be that although Italian-Americans deserve a founding father for like many nationalities, they contributed greatly to the nation, it would be good to be able to say that one of these signers was of Italian-American heritage. We just don't have it established. Records aren't always available of, for people at these times, and the, from everything in the written evidence, Paca seems to be of normal English ancestry. The suggestion is that Robert Paca, the immigrant, 
we talked about earlier, uh, was born in Italy, or this family had recently moved to England. Well, his father's name in England was Peaker, you know, P-E-A-K-E-R. Yet, when leaving land to ears, he would use the name Paca, P-A-C-A. Now, was he originally Italian and changed the name in order to kind of be able to live in England? England was not without its immigrants, especially escapees from Catholic countries who were Protestant. And adding to the whole controversy in the Pogger family is that a 20th century descendant said in the 1930s that he's always been told in his families that his forebears came from Italy. P-E-C-C-I, Pecky. So, unfortunately, that's not good genealogical research because you're talking about a 20th century descendant commenting on the past. Well, it's not much better than us. Most people that do that type of research have learned not to trust kind of family stories because family stories can lie. But So it's just something we don't have enough evidence of, and it's, it's a controversial point. But you will see him listed as simply Italian-American. Here's an old story, that of the achieving older brother eclipsing the younger one. For some, especially the shy, a great speech or statement is not in the cards for them. For them, it's a supporting role that best works. And this could be said of Francis Lightfoot Lee, younger brother to another signer, Richard Henry Lee, and of course, a member of one of Virginia's top families since that first immigrant, Richard Lee, came to Virginia in 1639 and made a fortune in tobacco. The family would be involved in Virginia history, and the most well-known descendant, of course, would be the Confederate general, The Lee family would still be involved in Virginia politics into the early 1980s. Lee was left a fortune by his father, who died when he was 16, and thus Lee was put in the charge of his brother Philip. He did not need to work. He devoted himself for several years just to reading and to the enjoyment of his friends. Philip wouldn't let him go to England. He would end up actually suing his brother for not distributing his father's will properly. He got along better with his other brothers, Arthur and Richard Henry, and Richard Henry, of course, would also be in the Continental Congress. 1765, he was elected a member of the House of Burgesses from Loudoun County, where his estate at that time was situated. When he got married and he moved to a different county, the county of Richmond, he was elected from that county. He had married his cousin, Rebecca Platter Taylor. Taylor's another family in deep in Virginia history. They were second cousins once removed. One question about this founder that I'm sure many have is Francis Lightfoot Lee, right? What is the Lightfoot? What does that mean? Lightfoot almost sounds like some kind of Indian name, right? Uh, Was it something that was used to describe him? It almost might have described him because Arthur Lee, one of his four brothers, wrote of Francis Lee uh, that he was calmness and philosophy itself. Frank, as he would have been called at the time, was known as shy, deferential, polite, and often perhaps the product of having such hot-headed brothers It was he settling disputes between people. But this is not the reason for the name Lightfoot. The Lees had intermarried with the Yorktown Lightfoot family. That family comes from England, from Kent and Northamptonshire in England. There are Lightfoots going all the way back in the record books to the 1200s in England. And yes, for those ancient relatives, that name did involve a bit of a description, a bit of bragging about their agility and perseverance in running Lightfoots. Lee lived his entire life, though, in the region of Virginia, Rappahannock River and the Chesapeake Bay, known as the Northern Neck of Virginia, and did not travel to the frontier that much and meet Indians. In 1775, Lee was chosen as a member of the Continental Congress by the Virginia Convention, served until 1779. He seldom took part in public discussions, but 
always showed support for the Patriot cause. When his brother Richard Lee got the honor of bringing forward the question of independence, Francis Lightfoot Lee, of course, supported it. Here in a letter to Colonel Landon Carter of Virginia, we see his feelings about independence. Francis Lightfoot Lee writes, Colonel, the insurances of friendship in your letter of the 30th of March give me very great pleasure. I hope it always continues as compensation for the many disquietudes unavoidable in this life. Oh yes, that was the way you began letters back then. It wasn't just, hello, hey, hi, like you might write in emails today. The question has never been before the Congress, and it's probable that they will wait till the people bring it before them which event is not very far off from the best accounts from the different parts of the continent. It's not improbable that even the colony of New York will step forward in this great question. The southern colonies, by delaying the remedy, I fear, will have violent symptoms to encounter. I feel myself deeply interested in the security and happiness of America, compared with which the interest of Britain is a feather in the scale. Let us, my dear friend, do the best we can for the good of our country and leave the event to fate. I note that in his letter, he used the term security and happiness of America. America, indeed. So we've talked about Frank Lee, and we've talked about Robert Morris, and some of the wealthier signers, and so it's worth to repeat some of the questions that are so often asked by the cursory look that most engage in when looking at the Declaration signers. Are they just a bunch of rich guys, particularly with modern history and economic history? And I don't fault the historians that apply that because you certainly can use it to understand what's going on in the historical situation. But is it just a case that signers of the Declaration were a bunch of rich guys preserving what they had? Well, one thing to say here, there are a few societies where leaders are not going to be people of some kind of means. These signers were, by and large, either merchants, lawyers, or planters. Few of them were not very wealthy lawyers, though they had wealthy clients. Samuel Adams was probably your better representative of the lower middle class, but even he had an education, family business, and government jobs at different times. He wasn't starving. A mechanic or day laborer is really not going to be able to put in the time to a position of volunteer or low-paid service required, nor, in a democracy, the time to campaign for it. Even our politicians today tend to be people of some means, either rich persons, lawyers to rich persons, or charming folks that are able to raise large amounts of money from rich persons. The concept at the time, especially, was that a rich man would be more honest, more disinterested than a poor man who would have to seek his money from the government. So, yes, the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, many of them were the power structure of colonial America like the Lees, like the Morrises, except, you know, someone like Samuel Adams, who was becoming a power, at least in, in Boston. But in the case of Adams, you know, his friends had to furnish him with a horse, with clothes, with spending money when he went to Philadelphia. Most of the other men did have property. 24 of them were lawyers, 11 of them were merchants, 9 were farmers. But every time you see farmers in regard to the signers, you're really talking about other people who are doing the farming work. They're planters. And the rest were doctors, career politicians, and, of course, college president. One of these signers we could talk about in this context is Thomas Nelson. We talked about him in the first uh, podcast. He inherited a large fortune, was renowned for having a good lifestyle, entertaining parties. During the war, he personally outfitted soldiers and put up his own bond for money lent for the war effort. See, 
the Virginia state government could issue whatever notes it wanted. So you had this convention. So you say you're this new state of Virginia. I'm not going to sell some to you and take that paper money. Had no credibility. With Thomas Nelson's name, then the state could issue money and start to incur debt on his credit. In 1781, Thomas Jefferson, who had been governor, refused re-election. He just didn't really see his ability in serving a, a state under siege. He didn't have the military skill. General Nelson became governor of Virginia, succeeded Jefferson, and served both as the civil governor and the commander-in-chief of the Virginia militia. So he fought the British in Virginia and was part of the combined Continental Army and French forces in the siege of Yorktown. One of the problems that Thomas Nelson ran into is that he was not largely indemnified for the losses that he occurred, and there were even some questions about his conduct and some of the executive actions he had taken, and he had to go through a witch hunt in uh, the Virginia legislature. So Nelson represents that even though some of these signers started with a good deal of money, because of the enterprise they engaged with of the new nation, they didn't all remain that way. And Nelson lost a large part of his fortune. Now, it's not like you see in some accounts where he died like penniless. And, you know, he still retained his house and uh, some of the land, but he obviously lost a substantial amount of his money. One of the richest Americans, a flamboyant Charles Carroll of Carrollton, reflects the place, reflects the town that he was given by his father, who was also Charles Carroll, but would be Charles Carroll of Annapolis. So avoid confusion, since there are also several other Charles Carrolls in Maryland. He was Charles Carroll of Carrollton. Now you don't want the British burning the wrong house now. It didn't matter about the name because he escaped the war unscathed, as did most of Maryland. He was the only Roman Catholic signer. Maryland was founded originally by English Roman Catholics who had escaped England in the 1630s. It was not a fun place to be always for those who weren't Protestant. Most of Charles Carroll of Carrollton's youth was actually not spent in America at all. At age 11, he was sent to a Jesuit institution in France, attended by wealthy English Catholics as well as prominent society in Maryland. He studied law, and then he returned to the colonies at age 28, 1765, just in time to jump at the Stamp Act protest and join the Patriot cause quickly. 1772, he engaged in a debate conducted through anonymous newspaper letters in which he wrote letters as the first citizen, maintaining the right of colonies to control their own taxation. Charles Carroll of Carrollton reflected the ambition of many of the signers we're talking about today that wasn't always realized. To be like the great gentlemen of England, to be able to sit back and live off the land, to be involved in good things such as public service without the need to constantly stay involved in all the money. I am resolved, he told a friend, to become a gentleman, avoid, and avoid every appearance of meanness and ostentation. There's no need to show off the wealth like a merchant. Just possess the wealth. That's the colonial American goal. Yet as many times as he wanted to take off and go to England on the income of his lands, even he, one of the richest signers in America, had to tell his father, our affairs absolutely require my residence in Maryland. This is true of most of the wealthy in America. Few were so rich that they could stop working. They could stop being involved in the management of their business. Another example, in Philadelphia, where there were about 300 significant merchants, 85% of them, uh, according to one account, had to work every single day. If they stopped, they could be ruined if they didn't work daily and lose everything. So they were rich, but not idle. 
Along with Paca, he would contribute to the Maryland militia, the so-called Maryland line for supplies. He would contribute to the new nation. When the United States government was created, Maryland legislator elected him to the United States Senate. Then when Maryland passed a law that prohibited someone from serving in the state and the national level at the same time, he chose the Maryland Senate. Now, this is something I've talked about. One of the reasons we don't know about as much about the signers as we should is that many of them chose to remain in their states, and the national government was a secondary importance. Let's let Washington and a few others do that. So he quit the U.S. Senate and served in the Maryland Senate. Though slightly younger than Adams and slightly older than Thomas Jefferson, he outlived all the signers. He is both the longest-lived and last surviving signer of the Declaration. Died in age 95 in 1831. Indeed, he had been invited, though he didn't make it for the 1832 Democratic Convention in Baltimore. That would have been the first Democratic Convention that nominated Andrew Jackson for president and Martin Van Buren for vice president. He declined, citing ill health, and he wouldn't make it to that date. He also helped to create the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad in 1827 in his last public act was the laying of the cornerstone of that railroad. Here is a signer of the Declaration since 1776, living to see both President Adams, living to see President Andrew Jackson, and living to see this modern invention of the railroad, which changed our country so much. So we've now talked about some of the richest signers. You will often hear that these are just rich men who signed the Declaration, who were our founders, and they were just preserving their own wealth. And it's not entirely untrue. In some cases, people were doing the best thing for their themselves, uh, while they might have also been serving a cause. In some cases, uh, signers even picked the wrong side. As we discussed, Morris and Braxton were signers, but not advocates originally for independence. In many cases, it could have been better to be a patriot in some areas of the country where patriots controlled things than a Tory for business. That might be less true in the middle colonies. The risk of destruction by Hessian hand was there, or Redcoat hand was there, but in some areas, the risk was greater of destruction by a Patriot militia if one didn't comply or one tried to sell things to the British. So uh, it is possible that some wealthy people signed up for the Patriot cause just because it was easier. But I think there's an additional complexity needed to talk about signers and wealth the signers discussed previously, and then if we add Lewis Morris and Hancock, are among the wealthiest of all the signers, right? They're wealthier than Sam Adams. They're wealthier than John Penn. They're wealthier than William Hooper. Wealthier than Oliver Walcott. They're wealthier than wealthier than Francis Hopkinson, etc. But that does not mean that these signers are the richest men in the colonies. See, there are many more rich people who did not sign. Though Carol and Morris would probably fit into that category of you know, richest people in the country. There were many uh, other men of means who did not take the same step that the people we're talking about did. And some big families. In Philadelphia, no Whartons signed. No Drinkers signed. In New York, no Van Rensselaer signed. In Boston, no Boyltons or Amory's signed. There are a lot of big families missing here. While we did have Livingstons and Lees, there are some big families missing here. Another point to make. American rich was nowhere near England rich. Very wealthy merchant in the colonies might possess... 25,000 pounds in their fortune. In London, to be considered that status, you know, there were merchants, uh, there were rich merchants with 400,000 pounds. Carol of Carrollton's income would probably be the highest, but yet it would be eclipsed by an English earl by 40 times, easily. And there were 
many such earls in England. It wasn't all so sad, though. Startup costs were lower in the colonies, and your name didn't matter as much. You didn't have to have ten generations in order to possibly succeed. Washington, not a signer, but a representative of the time, considered himself a yeoman compared to the English, while George Mason thought his children would probably be part of the working class, or could be in a few years. True, 82 Philadelphians in the new nation had country seats, just like wealthy Londoners did, but they weren't worth anywhere near as much, and most of these people were still working professionals who couldn't sit in the country seats all the time, merchants, lawyers, physicians. Unlike the wealthy in England, gentlemen in America may be well-educated, but it was rare that they could just simply live off land alone and do whatever they pleased. Some could, though they might be whistling away the family fortune in one generation. Rents were not as high as those in Europe. Couldn't make as much money off land like that. More Americans owned the land, too. Some two-thirds of Americans owned some kind of land in 1776 compared to one-fifth of Brits. Many of those, too, were smaller lots than what the Americans had. 400 families in England, it's estimated, owned about a fifth of the country, owned the English countryside. Virginia planters weren't sitting on a porch. In some cases, they had to operate taverns on their property to earn a little money. Most had to get involved in their businesses, even where they hired overseers. Overseers were not as established and trained as they were in England. Where gentlemen owned a lot of land, it wasn't all freehold. A lot of American wealth had debts attached. Thomas Nelson thought that of all of Virginia, the debts were uh, so large, it was a prelude to a giant, vast change of property that was soon to come when creditors would take the land and the families would switch places. Nor was the merchant life any easier than trying to be a gentleman. It was easy to start up as a merchant in America, but hard to be rich at it. Merchants often didn't want to waste time in public service like London gentry. Charles Petit, an American merchant, said that there was no need to politics unless it would eventually throw some business into my hands. He did actually get a position with the government. Lewis Morris complained that merchants considered public service in the colonies a tax on their time. We heard Robert Morris complain about the same thing. That's the way they viewed public service. It wasn't something they always rushed into. We're hearing about these names because these were the people that took the jobs, and there were many other people who didn't. The single link to these signers, you know, the, the most common activity before becoming a signer, was being in a state legislature. So given that, it's not surprising that we're talking about people who had some wealth, who was going to get elected to a colonial and then state legislature or convention. It's going to be people with some name, some reputation, and some property. Another point to make here, Americans had completed the throwing off of the feudal system begun in England. As a French economist and writer, as said in works translated by Jefferson and sent throughout the colonies, America was the best hope in the world. Society exists by conducting exchanges. Nobody owned anyone, anything except what they paid for. Even lineage was weak. A high value was what you did in the present. Franklin said, I never inherited a shilling, so I feel no obligation to leave one. That reflected some American thinking. Jefferson attacked the patrician order in Virginia. Benjamin Rush attacked those who resisted work. As Carol of Carrollton said, In America, the glory of industrious ancestors will not screen their needy posterity from want. In other words, families lived through the generations paycheck to paycheck. Even the big families. A branch of the Carter family lost his 1,200 acres and 40 slaves in less than three years of poor management. But while we did throw off some of this yoke, and to some extent, 
It didn't matter what your name was. You could build yourself up. It's not completely true. I mean, the family names mattered. But we should not see this as the big families of Virginia or the other colonies hogged up all the seats in Continental Congress instead of letting poorer people have a chance. This was a two-way street. The prestige of Continental Congress was increased by having names of these major families, many that had connections to royal government. When they declared independence as Lees, Braxtons, Morris's, Hancocks, that meant a lot more than if just a bunch of country militia did it. It also meant a lot more to the countries like France, Spain, Holland, that we were going to seek help from. We should distinguish the temporary nature, too, of great fortune. For many, they were just coming into the fortune, maybe from a marriage, an inheritance. It's not always in the family. It might have only been a few generations. Like Robert Morris, it might have been from industry and hard work. Now, what goes up sometimes could go down. Once cash poor, a name, even a signer's name, couldn't save you from ruin in America. So while some signers were rich, some of that money went to the revolutionary cause directly, to troops, as the case with Thomas Nelson, Carroll, Paca, Hancock, Braxton, and some never went back into their pockets. We should also distinguish the alignment of these wealthy individuals. Yes, these are rich men, but they pick sides. There were other rich men who stayed loyalists. Many went to Boston or New York or Philadelphia, when these cities were under occupation, they sold what they could and went under British protection, hoping to come back when the Patriots were vanquished. So we can distinguish between the rich men who did what today we might view as the right thing, sided with the country, and those who sided with the British Empire. And I think a final point. Even though all of them did not agree with complete liberty, with complete democracy, the ruling of the common people... One of the reasons I read Carter Braxton's complete statement about the kind of government he wanted before, even though that was the case, they started a system that many could even predict at the time could open up a reversal of their own status politically through increased democracy and participation of men. If nothing else, everyone we're talking about put their name on a document that said all men are created equal. Now we know, since so many of them were slaveholders, that they were interpreting it in a form foreign to us with modern sensibility, certainly. Some may have just signed it for political reasons. All men are created equal. But the words they agreed to and put their family names on in public, as Herman Melville said, brought democratic dynasty like a royal mantle to all Americans. And Melville went on. Even he who wields a pick or drives a spike. It's a quote that I think should be in consideration when we think about these men. In the next episode, we talk about swing states nowadays. Well, in 1776, during the vote on independence, it was Pennsylvania. Now, many states were wavering back and forth, but there was no way independence was going to happen unless the flag was waved in the host state of the Congress. So we'll talk about the battle for Pennsylvania next time. I want to thank you for listening. If you do like this podcast, please uh, give us a comment on iTunes. Uh, make us a favorite on Stitcher. I have another podcast, which is known as My History Can Beat Up Your Politics at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. Thanks for listening.